This is episode 51. You're listening to the All Hazards Podcast, where we take you behind the scenes to give you exclusive access to emergency managers who've been on the front lines of some of the nation's most difficult challenges. Where we have candid conversations about the challenges facing all emergency managers, no matter how big or small the community. Here's your host, Sean Boyd. Well, you may have heard us say it before, but California is a disaster-prone state. National parks and state parks as well are certainly not immune from the ravages of Mother Nature's whims, whether it's fires, floods, winds. They all have a role in shaping the Golden State's landscape. In this episode, we're going to focus on her one-two punch, specifically in Yosemite National Park, where the recent Ferguson fire in July left burn scars all over the western side of the park. So much coming up right now. Well, I guess if I have to say, uh, having a podcast recorded on location, this has got to be one of the best locations you could ever hope for to record a podcast. I'm here in the heart of Yosemite Valley on a beautiful, gorgeous day. The weather has been absolutely phenomenal. We're here at the uh, administration building with uh, the Chief Public Affairs Officer, Scott Gediman, and Public Affairs Officer, Jamie Richards. And by the way, for those folks who are not quite sure, these Public Affairs Officers are also park rangers. So if there's any members of the media out there wondering, they're both. Thanks for having me here, guys. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for you coming. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's so great to be here. Finally getting to talk to you guys. Um, making the trip here, it's about a four-hour drive from Sacramento, and uh, it is worth every painstaking mile getting here. Once you're here, the payoff is amazing. You guys have this every day you come to work. What is that like? We do, and it's uh, sometimes when I'm here in the valley, I'll, I'll walk around and I can see Yosemite Falls from my office or I can look up and see Half Dome, and some days I always remind myself not to take it for granted. It's easy to come into the office and get busy with phone calls and emails. And sometimes uh, Jamie and I, we will make a point to just take a walk or go mm -hmm. out and just appreciate that we're living and working in a place that people come from all over the world to yeah. vacation. You have to stop and smell the roses here. You do. You know, it's a very special place. It's easy to get pulled into your day-to-day -day job, the task at hand. And then I like to look out my window. I'm looking up at the top end of Yosemite Falls. I'm like, I work in a pretty special place. Pretty special. Now, you've been on board for two years now. I've been on board here in Yosemite as a public affairs officer for two years. I've been in the park service for eight years. This is my fifth national park. So I'm one of those rangers and Scott too. You know, we start as a young ranger working your way up. I was a campground ranger. I worked in a visitor center. I worked my way from the fee station and was able to transition into my dream job, which was public affairs. I can't imagine you wanting to move anywhere else at this point. Right now, this is a pretty good gig. Scott, you know that. You've been here how long now? I've been here 22 years. 22 years. I started at Glen Canyon National Recreation Area, which uh, is no, better known as Lake Powell in Arizona and Utah, and worked uh, seasonally there and permanent, worked at the Grand Canyon a little bit, but uh, saw this posting uh, over 22 years ago and got here and uh, 
been here ever since. Man, not too bad. And and having sat in your office today, uh, yeah, you're right. You can see where the falls are. Right now they're a little dry, but you can envision them just coming right over the edge right there. Beautiful. Exactly. Unbelievable. So tell me, for those who aren't sure, what does a park ranger such as yourselves in this park do? Just as a park ranger, not as a public affairs officer. Well, that that's a good question, and people people ask all the time. And and the way I like to say it is that the term park ranger is a little bit of a catch-all, and that the uh, larger the park is, like Yosemite or Grand Canyon, the more specialized the job is. So as a park ranger, um, our rangers perform a variety of tasks. For example, um, I always say look at it in terms of a, a city. The rangers do law enforcement services, fire, structural and wildland, search and rescue, emergency medical response. So it's kind of like the paramedics, the police department, the fire department. Also in our interpretation division, park rangers will work the visitor center desks, give walks and talks, things like that. The rangers also work in the dispatch office, collect fees at the entrance stations and campgrounds, and a lot of a lot of different things. And so in a small park, somebody might collect fees, for example, and give the talks at night. But in a park like Yosemite, uh, where there's so many people, the park rangers specialize Very in Very specialized. Things. But in the smaller parks, you wear many hats. Exactly. All of those hats on one person, possibly, right? Sure, right. sure, sure. Tell me about the park itself. Uh, just a thumbnail sketch, if you don't mind, for those people who've heard of Yosemite but have never been here. Yosemite National Park was the third national park established in our system of national parks. A lot of people forget that. Um, but going back a little before that, it's the place that really the national park idea was born. 1864, mm-hmm. we're in the middle of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln signs the Yosemite Grant Act. This was a pivotal moment for the first time ever. A place was set aside for preservation so people could come and enjoy a beautiful place. So they had vision back then. Absolutely. And so the vision from 1864 trickled down. You come, you got Yellowstone National Park, Sequoia National Park, and then Yosemite National Park in 1890. And here we are today, one of over 400 national park units in the United States. We're one of the larger national parks. We're about the size of the state of Rhode Island, um, over 700,000 acres, and we see over 4 million visitors a year. Well, I have to tell you, I've been to many of those other national parks, and this this one is uh, holds a special place in my heart. And I know it does for you too as well. Obviously, being here in California, a very natural disaster-prone state, uh, we get just about anything and everything that Mother Nature can throw at us. This past year, um, as in recent years, uh, what was it, six years ago or so, we had the Rim Fire. Was it six years ago or five years 2013. ago? 2013. 2013, so five, five, years, five ago. years ago. Correct. Five years ago, the Rim Fire uh, did a lot of damage. And then just this past July and August, the Ferguson Fire. Uh, had a big impact on the area. And driving up here, you could see the remnants of many fires. Tell me about, uh, first of all, how the rangers here, how your agency here found out about the fire. Was it, did someone call or how does that happen? What happens with us is that um, here in Yosemite, we're 
a huge park, as Jamie just mentioned, and we're also in three different counties. We're in Mariposa County, uh, Madera, and Tuolumne County. And what happens is we work a lot with our partners from at the state and county level. So the Ferguson Fire um, actually started outside of the park um, on Highway 140. And so it's interesting because within the Merced River Canyon between the park and the town of Mariposa, we do what's called mutual aid. So for example, if there's um, auto accidents, we'll work with California Highway Patrol, we'll work with Cal Fire. And so this particular fire, when it was called in, in fact, it was one of our firefighters, a neighbor of mine, I just recently found out was the first one on the scene. He was called out because um, um, geographically, we're a lot closer of course, than Mariposa County Sheriff's, for example, or Cal Fire. And so when this particular fire happened, it was called into our dispatch center. And then um, my neighbor actually went out there and and saw that it happened. And then they called us and then we responded. And at that point, it had just kind of taken off. It started in the afternoon. And so there was no way that that we could suppress it before it grew. But basically, um, there was just a call into a 911 center and between the county and us, we responded to it. So was there wind that day? There was not wind. Mm. Yeah. But the conditions were ripe for this kind of fire. The conditions have been right. It's interesting, as you mentioned, with California, and and as people know that that live in the state, we've um, had a a five-year drought, and we did have a good winter a couple of winters ago. But this particular area, and we can talk more about it, but going up what's called the South Fork of the Merced River, the drainage, going up um, the drainage up towards the Yosemite West area toward Glacier Point, this is an area that's heavily forested, has steep rugged terrain, has not seen fire. We've got a lot of the beetle kill trees. And so it was basically every single component that makes an area susceptible to fire was right there. Um, the, the cause of the fire is still under investigation, but basically um, where the fire started and spread was at the point where we knew if a large fire would start, that would be the point. Was there ever a concern that the fire was going to make its way into the valley? There wasn't a concern. It's interesting because as the fire grew, one thing with the Ferguson fire over the weeks was that it was a very slow-moving fire. And it was something that um, we'll talk, of course, about smoke impacts and some of the conditions. But as the fire moved toward the park, we evacuated um, areas of the park. For example, El Portal was evacuated, and then we evacuated Yosemite West. And as the fire was moving up the South Fork drainage and going toward that area, there was a concern that it would come to the valley. It wasn't a major concern, but... um, excuse me, working with the incident management team and looking at the different scenarios, there was a scenario that the fire could come down from the Glacier Point area. Folks know that along the Wawona Road, Highway 41 corridor, and come into the valley. It was never a major concern, but one thing about this fire and all the fires throughout the state this year, in, in particular, was the unpredictability of the f- fire behavior. You know, we've got not just the steep, rugged terrain and the lack of fire history. Uh, we also have got hot, dry conditions and a real dry year. So uh, all of these areas were were quote unquote ripe for this type of fire activity. So we kept telling ourselves with this fire, we we weren't ruling anything out. Part of the problem with having a fire like this is, you know, they can cut off roots into and out of the park. And as someone, Jamie, as you know, you, you, I guess, 
for lack of a better word, commute into your job, right? I do. I commute the 140 corridor, the Merced River Canyon, every single day Mm -hmm. to and from work, uh, which is the place that was most impacted by the Ferguson fire. The fire started along the 140 Canyon in that Canyon corridor. And so for several days, I would have to either drive three hours around or I would have been cut off down in Mariposa Mm -hmm. and unable to get to Yosemite Valley, which is where my office is. And quite a few of our employees are in the same situation. We have a lot of staff that live in Mid Pines and Mariposa, Oakhurst, and they commute into the park. How many employees does the park have right now? Let's say maybe during the peak season when the fire was happening. Peak season, um, we would have about 800 employees. And so for folks familiar with Yosemite know we're here in Yosemite Valley and this is this is the biggest operation in terms of visitor services but there also is the south part of the park there's Wawona area and we have a lot down there there's Glacier Point up in the northern part of the park where there's Tuolumne Meadows Crane Flat we've got the Hetch Hetchy area so the park is spread geographically and as Jamie mentioned is that there's folks that live in the Mariposa um, area that commute via Highway 140 so for example if someone would work up at Hodgson Meadow um, they might live in Groveland um, or that area and come in that way so geographically the park is spread out and the employees are spread out and when we get situations like this whether it's a fire a rock fall flooding and it gets into road closures um, as Jamie was saying that it made me think from from El Portal to the valley for me is normally a a, a 30 minute or so commute but when I go when we say go around that means go through the park go to Oakhurst and go around now in the Ferguson fire I couldn't do that because 140 was closed but for example if, if 140 is closed in the in inside of the park, my 30-minute commute would be about a two-and-a-half-hour commute uh. to go down and around, which is a long ways. Well, you know, there are a lot of people who live in some of the bigger cities that have uh, one, two-hour commutes. The super commuters that go from Sacramento to San Francisco sometimes look at two, three-hour commutes, depending on traffic. They don't have quite the beauty to look at right, sure. that you do. Okay, so I'm going to soften that blow just okay. a little bit, okay? <laughs> but you're right. It is it, it does impact. And let's talk about that. How did the Ferguson fire, which began, what, sometime in mid-July, early July, and then went all the way through, I think it was fully contained in like August 18th I mean, August, or 19th. Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th. It started really? July 13th. Okay. And it was fully contained, I believe it was August 19th. So about five and a half, six weeks right. in total. What were the impacts of the fire on the park itself? So we'll get into the impacts of the Ferguson fire in just a moment. You're listening to our interview with Park Ranger and Chief Public Affairs Officer for Yosemite National Park, Scott Gediman, and Park Ranger and Public Affairs Officer, Jamie Richards. We caught up with them at their headquarters in the heart of Yosemite Valley. We wanted to find out about the impacts of the fire on the park. When we were here in the valley, some of the worst days of the smoke, you could not see from you to me, which is about three feet. We also wanted to know how the park is faring now that the fire is out. And what challenges Scott and Jamie faced both as park rangers and as public affairs officers. You can only imagine the pressures to keep the park open were enormous. So how did they make the decision to close the park? And was there backlash from businesses, visitors, and their government leaders? Press releases have to be very carefully worded, especially when there's no way to know when the park could reopen. Let's find out. Back to the conversation. What were the impacts? of the fire on the park itself. 
huge impacts on the park for us, as we mentioned, it was the employees, was that um, employees that, that Highway 140 was closed. So you had uh, employees that uh, were commuting was difficult. We had um, challenges of getting supplies and everything from, from food and um, for the concessioner. So you had huge impact on operations. And the biggest impact for us throughout the fire was the smoke. Um, in my 22 years here in Yosemite, um, I've seen a lot of fires. And what's interesting is the rim fire that you mentioned, for example, in 2013 with the wind patterns, although that came into the park in the northern part of the park, throughout the rim fire, Yosemite Valley was never impacted. We had beautiful blue skies because the winds during the entire rim fire, except for a couple of days, were shifting up toward Lake Tahoe. But here with the Ferguson fire, both with fire here in Yosemite Valley um, and smoke, excuse me, smoke here in Yosemite Valley and smoke impacts in El Portal, um, it, it was huge. And then once the smoke impacts and the road impacts and and with smoke, when it was reaching that unhealthful and sometimes hazardous condition, we not only had to weigh how do we keep the park open, how do we keep supplies open, but at the same time with employees, um, we have to be concerned about employees' um, health and safety. I want to put that in perspective uh, for all of our listeners. You know, when we were here in the valley, some of the worst days of the smoke, you could not see from you to me, which is about three feet. Yeah. You'd be out walking in the valley or driving. You couldn't see the car in front of you. It was almost like driving through a fog bank, but it was white, heavy smoke. With ash. With ash. And it was thick. And um, Scott and I took a drive up to um, what we call Tunnel View, one of the most scenic viewpoints in Yosemite National Park, particularly overlooking Yosemite Valley at the Wawona Tunnel. You couldn't see the valley. Hmm. You mm-hmm. just saw this white cloud down below you. Uh, and that was very surreal. Obviously not healthy to breathe that because of the particulates that are in that smoke. So it's not like you said, like a fog, even just by its consistency. At some point, you had to make the decision whether or not to close the park. Who makes that decision? Our park superintendent would make make a decision like that. It's interesting because when we talk about law enforcement and park operations, we have what's called exclusive jurisdiction. And that means this is federal land and that our uh, park superintendent, Mike Reynolds, would make those decisions. Now, it's interesting, we'll talk about the structure, but from early on, we were working very closely with, um, on the federal level, with the United States Forest Service Bureau of Land Management federal agencies, the state uh, from um, Office of Emergency Services, uh, from CAL FIRE on the county level. And so a lot goes into that. But it was interesting that um, with my care and the, and the management team, we had to look at a lot of those things. And so the decisions are based upon what are the roads like, what are the smoke like, how can we sustain visitors. And, and we look at ourselves and, and, and we look at situations like this and we always have to say, okay, the health and safety of the park visitors and the employees is our first concern. And once we look at that, then we have to look at, can we have visitors come here and can those visitors be safe? Can we provide them a safe road? Is there air to breathe? Is there a place for them to get food? And so it's all of those kind of basic things that that make us do that. And what's interesting um, too, and I'll mention briefly, and we could go more into it, was that 
people have to remember this was in the middle of the summer visitor season. So you've got a lot of these towns, Mariposa, Oakhurst, even on the east side of the Sierra, Mammoth Lakes, June Lakes, that are either partially or fully dependent upon tourism for their economic livelihood. And so it didn't come lightly to Jamie and me because every time we announce an evacuation or a road closure or something like that, I always thought in the back of my mind, and this is thousands and millions of dollars of impacts because as people start canceling rooms and they cancel more, it we were not only making those decisions very strategically and weighing a lot, but Jamie and I, in our role as public affairs, had to be very careful and very strategic in our words and the wording because we knew it was literally impacting people's livelihoods. And that's something that, that we don't and, and still don't take lightly. So there, there is pressure. There is pressure that you're getting, uh, the economic pressure to stay open as long as you can, while at the same time balancing the safety of the visitors and the staff here. Talk about the kind of pressure. What level of pressure did you feel? Was it coming from individuals or representatives, or was it just sort of omnipresent? The pressure that we get um, is is on a lot of different levels. We'll get everything from individuals, for example, like in Yosemite West, a community near Glacier Point, people would have like a vacation rental. So so that's impacting them. We'll get the individuals. We'll get a lot of the uh, t- visitor bureaus outside because what they'll do is once they cancel hotel rooms, then they're impacted. So the visitor bureaus and then people um, will reach out to their elected officials, which is wonderful, but then they'll call, for example, um, uh, Tom McClintock is the congressman for our district. So they'll call the congressman's office. And it goes all the way up to Washington because not only is it a huge economic impact for visitors, we have international visitors who have bought plane tickets, have plane reservations, people have weddings planned, people plan here. And so so it's a huge impact. And so can you imagine you have a vacation plan? And for a lot of these people, it's a once in a lifetime thing. People have saved up a lot of money. People are coming here, and so we're we're basically um, you know altering or, or canceling for just to be very transparent. People's vacations, and so so the pressure is huge. And so so Mike and and Jamie and I and the and the, you know the upper level management here. Those are th- those are considerations all the time because we know if it's anything from a you know if it's a road closure for a few days, that's one thing. But anytime we start talking about closures and evacuations it becomes a whole a whole new level of discussions but the pressure is just enormous and then once it's closed and then it doesn't end because then there's the pressure of when are you going to reopen oh my (laughs) oh my every word counts from a public messaging point of view public affairs and jamie you're new to this game here how careful were you to choose the right words we're always extremely careful and we were very careful in this situation and so a good example of this and jamie and i i wrestled with this is that we write the news releases and and we speak uh, for the park to the news media and so for example when el portal was evacuated and closed and the road was closed and we evacuated yosemite valley and closed the valley um we had announced it was going to reopen about a week later 
a week came and went. The smoke was still bad. We weren't going to open it. Then we were going to announce again when we're going to open it. And then when it got to the point where we were looking at both potential of fire coming in, continued smoke impacts, we didn't know. And so we then had to write a news release, for example, saying the valley is closed and we didn't know when it was going to open. And that's the kicker because then do we say indefinitely? Do we say until further notice? Do we say another week? And so, for example, if we say it's going to open another week and then people make reservations and it doesn't, then then we're in a bad situation. But then what we did is we ended up using the word indefinitely. And a good example is we got a lot of pushback on that. And it was interesting because we look back on it and we, we say, well, we didn't choose that word lightly and we felt we needed to do it because at the point of the fire, they're saying, look, it could be a few weeks, could be a few months. And so we wanted to do that because, again, it's the balancing. We want to be realistic and have the, um, and basically communicate the situation, but at the same time, um, not not do the doom and gloom thing. It's always that, that balancing act. And so it's being very careful and not just with the news release and, and, and how we do interviews because we can talk about it. But with this fire and all of us individually is, is, is I look at it like we have our, we have our original news and we have, uh, you know, TV, for example, from Fresno and San Francisco, we had national news, but we had internet. This is an international news story. We had crews from Japan, from Germany. And that's what we, uh, Jamie and I, every time we have a news release, we say, we're about to make international news. Yeah. International news. Another thing that we were very thoughtful in considering was the the message of is the park open? Is it closed? And making sure that we were careful to message that Scott and I, along with the team around us, made a very conscious decision. Yosemite National Park is open. Mm. And there are areas that you could still come and recreate and enjoy. And we did that consciously, yeah. trying to make sure that people understood if you are in these areas, it is still safe. It is still a good time. You can still come and have fun. We wanted to make sure that people have good information to plan a trip um, while still making sure that people could be safe. Right, right. How far up the chain of command did your press releases go before they were approved? They, they're approved at the park level. Are the, they? The, the, the way we're organized is that we have the exclusive jurisdiction, but with over 400 national park units, we're, we're actually pretty autonomous. And what I mean by that is, is our superintendent um, will make the decision. Now, he will, of course, call. We have a regional office in San Francisco. That's the western region for the national parks. And then from the regional office, we have our national office in Washington. And then we, as a national park service, are a bureau of the Department of the Interior. And so what we'll do is we'll come up with 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 the news releases Jamie and I will and and we'll give that the heads up if you will and and it, it's one of those things where again like everything it, it's, it's a balancing act and Jamie um, said it really well is that we understand the impacts and we have to be very careful because for example um, with Yosemite so many areas it's not just open and closed for example Tuolumne Meadows remained open throughout the entire fire. And so we made that conscious decision, but to get back to um, us is that we'll write a news release and, and what we'll do, for example, is we'll send it to like our regional office or Washington. We'll send it um, 
you know, everywhere from two hours to the night before saying, we're going to send that out, kind of a heads up. And that way, if there's any, if there's any questions or any pushbacks, you know, we just, we just don't want our Washington level uh, people to be surprised. But one thing with the National Park Service and one thing with us, for better or for worse, we, we do a lot of disasters and we do a lot of emergencies. And so generally, if, if, if um, someone in Washington, for example, gets a call that says, hey, we're evacuating, we're closing Yosemite Valley, it's great that they know, but it's one of those things where, where they'll understand this is not just an arbitrary decision. There's a lot that went into it. And someone like Mike, our superintendent, who was the acting director before he got here, he has over 30 years with the National Park Service. Our chief ranger's experienced is that for better or for worse, we have a lot of practice at this. And so when we inform the higher ups of what's going on, they, they, you know, they'll know and sometimes they'll have follow up questions or they'll get the congressional inquiries. But but Gen, but but not generally, just about all the time, they'll, they'll support our decision. Okay, so from, from just a human perspective, how do you uh, handle that kind of pressure, that oversight, knowing that, you know, what you're about to do or say has a huge impact on the economics of this area? You know, well, how would you tell someone who came into your situation, say, just, just do this, just what would you tell them? I tell them to look, write a news release, but then always have the messages in your head. And what I always ask myself is I look at a news release, I've been doing it a long time, and I say, how is a business owner in Mariposa going to get this? Um, how is the media going to respond to it? How is a congressional or Senate office? And I look at all these different things because everybody has their own lens and look at it. And so I'll tell myself, okay, I want to send this and I want to communicate it clearly and transparent, but at the same time realize it has impacts. And so I always look at myself on the receiving end. If I'm an assignment editor in a television station, am I going to look at this and what am I going to think of it? And think about the impacts. And then that goes back and helps Jamie and I uh, basically think of our messages and our talking points, if you will. I'm generally not a big fan of the of, of the talking points um, statement itself, but but I do like, but to me, it's always messaging because one thing for us, and, and we want to be real clear, and is, as you know from the Office of Emergency Services, is that one thing, it's not necessarily justifying a decision, but it's basically, it's communicating a decision and the why. Just so no, because we know it's going to have a huge impact. I mean, there's people, there. Um, there's people that called us who are saying our business might not survive. I mean, Jamie and I are going to tourism bureau meetings. We're meeting with people and this is in the, you, you, you know, there's no way to quantify a number. And so I always tell myself when you say these things, when you go out and say the Valley's closed or this is closed, I always, uh, you, you know, the, the advice that I give to Jamie who does a great job. And, and when I even tell myself after all these years, say, you, you think about how it's going to be received. And that's something I think sometimes within organizations, we don't think of those things. We just, let's just get the word out. And, and, and I think you have to kind of look at it like how it's going to be received and think it through and then circle back. And sometimes you say, maybe we'll say it differently and we can say the same thing. It can either uh, be, be more illustrative or put it more in perspective. And as Jamie mentioned, because the minute we say a part of the park is closed, sometimes with the news media right away, Yosemite National Park is closed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so they want to simplify it. And so we understand that and it helps us 
formulate our messages. And it's really, I felt, a, a, a great tool for us because we know when we put out these news releases, especially in something like The Fire, and it's not just world news because we know that there's going to be millions of people that are going to be um, – that are going to hear it, it's the impacts that that really concern us, and especially on this one. And it sounds to me too, and I that you would recommend having an extra pair, two pairs, three pairs of eyes looking at whatever it is you're writing before you pull the trigger and send it, right? We do that. Uh, it's funny you say that because Jamie and I will write a news release. The two of us will look at it. And sometimes like on this, we'll have the fire team or all the people look at it. And we'll do that too with other releases. We always say we're not we're not asking you to review for content, but for, for accuracy and, and to check things. But but we'll always, uh, every time we send a news release, we're like, let's read it over one more time. Another factor that Scott and I work really hard, we talk this through together, and then we, we work the other team members who are involved. How do we set realistic expectations? And how can we help people really understand what is fully safe and open? Utwalmy Meadows was never impacted by the fire. So how can we prevent people from being scared? from right. coming up the 395 corridor, coming in the Tioga Road entrance station and going for a hike in Tuolumne Meadows. So how do we get good information out while still making sure people understand, you know, the valley's closed for a reason and these are the reasons that it's closed and not everyone may agree with our reasons, but if we put the good information out with an explanation, most people are understanding. So what are the concerns for the fall and winter when the rain is expected to saturate those burn scar areas? We'll find out that in just a moment. First, you're listening to our interview with Park Ranger and Chief Public Affairs Officer for Yosemite National Park, Scott Gediman, and Park Ranger and Public Affairs Officer, his colleague, Jamie Richards. We caught up with them at their headquarters in the heart of Yosemite Valley. Not a bad place to have an office. Well, it's not that often that Yosemite Valley closes, but when it does, that decision is not made lightly. You know, the minute we announce we're closing Yosemite Valley, we're in, you know, we could be canceling a wedding. Also, what can they do to mitigate potential water-induced disasters? Any preemptive measures? And then what about the man-made crises? They can deal a severe blow to visitor attendance. We had a serial killer in the area. Transparency applies to national parks too. Bad news goes out just as the good news does. Now back to our conversation with Scott Gediman and Jamie Richards. So moving on from the actual fire itself, the fire is now in the past, looking forward to the future. What are the concerns right now for the upcoming rainy season, if you want to call it that? Our concern is basically um, mud flows and rock fall. Um, we have an area here that a lot of our roads going back to the 20s and 30s, it's interesting Highway 140 that JV and I both use was dubbed the all-weather highway. And when it was finished in 1927, it was a former stagecoach road because it's the lowest elevation um, into the park, the lowest road, and it goes right along the Merced River Canyon. So on the one hand, it's beautiful and it's in the canyon, but it's also with the road right next to it over the years. It's can Jamie's, uh, I was going to say, we I stopped counting years ago how, how many how many rock slides. And so it this all rolls is, downhill yeah, right this onto is, the and, freeway, onto and the highway. Is, exactly. And this is our concern with this is that we had a lot of burned areas. And then for us, there's different types of burns. There's high-intensity burns, low-intensity burns, how it's done. And, and with us, and we can talk about it, but in short... 
Um, we don't, we don't replant trees. We'll go and we'll do, we have what's called a bear team that comes, not, not bear like the animals. Bear is, um, B-A-E-R, burned area emergency rehabilitation. And so we'll have a team come in and we'll look at things like infrastructure. Do we need to fix a culvert? Do we need to replace a sewer? But we'll also look at areas that, um, we have potential for, uh, for rock falls or for sliding and things like that. And so that's something that we've said, although we keep saying knock on wood afterward or think about it, is that that is frankly one of our concerns is that with the drought and once we get the rain, of course, it's like a fire. You know, on a, a slow-moving fire, good bird, the same as the rain, we get a, a huge downpour, get a lot of rain in a short amount of time. This could precipitate a lot of the, a lot of the mud and the debris coming down. So what can you do to mitigate that? There's really not 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 a lot we can do. I mean, there's areas too when we have rocks across the road, and this is inside and outside of the park. It's 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 gravity and and, and it's mother nature. And I don't mean to be trite with that, but but I just say that for us, you know, one thing I've done over the years, one when, when one of the things we do with the media or we'll talk about these emergencies, I always like to point out, you know, Yosemite National Park is is, is a wild place. National parks are wild by nature, and these are natural processes. So fire is a part of the natural cycle as is periodic flooding as is rock falls or things like that and so it's one of those things i've learned over the years you know you can't control this stuff and you, you know and there's nothing that that we can or, or would do if we could and so so for us mitigation measures that we've taken in place are things like um you know building you know building rock walls that of hillsides that are prone to slide uh, of fixing drainages doing a lot of those things that that will help us in situations like this but really overall with a with the geography that Yosemite covers and with the 90,000 acres of this fire although only about 10% of that was in the park along the highway 41 corridor and the 140 corridor we've got some burned areas that haven't been burned for years and so we're certainly concerned going into the fall and winter with the rain and the potential mud and debris float. So if you happen to spot or if your your engineers, your rangers happen to see a location that looks like it could be prone to a slide given the perfect amount of rainfall, is that something that you would either in the past or in the future actually close that highway before something happens in order to mitigate potential disaster? It is something that, that we look at, and normally um, it's difficult for us to close something earlier uh, just because, you know, number one, we don't know, and also we know, for example, if a road is closed, it's affecting both employees coming in and, and park visitors. And so we have in the past, for example, this past spring, we had flooding and we and we um, got some, um, you know, warnings from the National Weather Service. And for example, they're saying huge amount of rain and a lot coming in a short period of time. Uh, Yosemite Valley could be underwater. And so in this past April, for example, we closed Yosemite Valley um, for three days. And that's not something we do normally. But it was interesting for me in my time because based upon the weather predictions and based upon what would happen. And we've seen the flooding. We have a good historical record of the flooding. We did take that preemptive measure of closing the valley uh, for doing that. But again, just like the fire, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking to myself, you know, April is not um, as busy as the summer, but still we know, you know, the minute we announce we're closing Yosemite Valley, we're in, you know, we could be 
canceling a wedding. We could be canceling a time. And so it's one of those things of, of measuring that, that we don't want to react to everything, but being proactive is something that, that we have to be really careful about because we have, you know, as Jamie mentioned, over 4 million visitors a year and people have trips planned months and years in advance. And we know that, that these are going to be huge impacts. It's more likely to see temporary closures. For instance, in there are certain areas that have been prone to different um, rock slides. We have a hydrologist on staff. We have a geologist on staff. Um, they've been able to identify certain target areas that you know we need to watch. So if we know, oh, it's starting to rain, we might watch that area and the geologist might call up and say, I need to close this place for an hour. So we might have temporary closures. And as long as nothing comes down, we reopen it again. And so that's one technique that we use. We do have experts on staff that are scientists that give us good information that Scott and I can turn around and craft the messaging. And if it's a small closure like that, we may not put out a full-blown news release. Um, but if we're looking at an overnight closure, then we would. This area has been known, no, California as a whole has been known for uh, disasters of varying degrees and types. Yosemite has also uh, had its own sort of issues that tend to draw the media here, uh, or at least make the, the newspaper, so to speak. There, there was a man who was missing at one point. Uh, I think he was from Oakland. Uh, there have been accidental deaths here, which, you know, anytime you get uh, outdoor extremists who want to push the limits of their own abilities, you're going to get that. You also get unfortunate accidents that could have been prevented, uh, as well as, you know, crimes that have been committed and very notorious crimes. As someone, as, as a team who, who works in, public affairs. You're, part of your job is to create the best image for the park and to make sure that people know it's a, it's a good place to come. It's, f you know, it's family friendly. It's, it's a place that has been known worldwide to be one of the most beautiful places on the planet. What challenges have you come across uh, in maintaining um, the kind of image that you want to portray when some of these other things pop up? I think for us, one of the most important things is, is people have to realize, you know, Jamie and I are, are national park rangers first and foremost, and working um, representing Yosemite National Park. And so we wanna be transparent and, um, and open as we can. And so it's one of those things that, that we, we have to put out the bad news as, as, as part of the good news. And as you mentioned, we've had even, in fact, it's been a long time now, we had a, we had a serial killer in the area who, um, who, who killed people, uh, three people in and outside of the park. And that created a, a, a huge media interest, of course. So one thing that we do if there's, um, as you mentioned, if there's an accidental death or a drowning or things like that, um, we'll certainly get that out there. But what we'll do um, is we'll really look at, in my opinion, the, the most important thing is to look at it and put it in perspective. Meaning, Someone um, someone goes off of a waterfall, for example. We had three people that went over a waterfall. Now, it's interesting because we don't want to certainly, you know, say, oh, th those people did something wrong. Clearly, they shouldn't have gone over a guardrail, but we look at it like as a teaching moment, if you will. We want to say, look, there's guardrails. We give information out. We tell people, we're going to give you the materials 
to basically know this is the type of footwear, these are the trails, and we want to give all the people the information they have, and, and hopefully those people will make good decisions. And when people don't make good decisions, um, unfortunately, it, it ends up sometimes in, in tragedy and, and in death, just, just, just to be very uh, blunt, if you will. And so what's interesting is those kind of things is that we feel that, that we don't want to say, oh, we're not going to say that because we, we don't want people to know but again, we want to look at it in terms of education. And one thing here with the 4 million, in fact, two years ago on the National Park Centennial, we had over 5 million visitors. And although we have a good number of rangers and people, we're, we're all very busy. And so for us, it's that there's no way for us to contact every visitor. So it's things like the park newspaper having safety messages, people um, looking on our website and having those. And we want to give people the best information so they make the best decisions, but frankly, a lot of times that they don't, and and we have to weigh it and just be just be as transparent as, as we can. What are the challenges when something like that happens immediately following an event for you in your public affairs office? What are the immediate challenges that you face? Well, the immediate challenge for us is 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 the news cycle and is the media. Um, you know, I've been I've been doing this type of work for over thirty years, and as folks know that that watch the news or or follow it, it's interesting because there's um, you know there there was the twenty four hour news cycle and then the the twenty four second news cycle, oh, yeah. and now it's instantaneous. And for us, a lot um, is it has to do with social media, and so one of the challenges for us, for example, when we had the three people go over Vernal Fall, or we have something and the media hears about it right away. Um, one thing, in fact, Jamie and I were discussing this yesterday, is that the media calls right away and they want the information. So we have to look at things from an investigate um, from a from an investigative point of view. Someone falls off of of cliff, for example. We just can't. Um, well, they did this, this, and this. We don't know and we don't want to speculate. You got that component. We've got family notifications. If it's a fatality, we have HIPAA. We've got all of these different laws. And so for us, one of the challenges is the news media because back, you know, 10 years ago, even five years ago, you know, I would have reporters call me and there's a rock fall and there's a fatality. I would say, look, we've got to, you know, before we release a name next to kin notification, we have to um, go through a lot of processes. And so the media would understand. But nowadays, when something like that happens and it's on Facebook instantaneously, for example, and the media comes to us and say, we want to know when, what, you know, the time, and we, and, and, and we can't give that information legally. Legally, we can't. And also, we have a professional responsibility. We're not going to do that. Then, then I, we're seeing more and more of the media is pushing back. And, and, and I'll say to them, for example, these are, these are you know, traditional news sources and a couple of them nationally known news sources. And in fact, I, I had a kind of an argument with a um, reporter in, in, out of Sacramento, for example, and I won't mention his name, but he called me up and he was very frustrated about a rock fall last fall. He wanted to know immediately the, got the gentleman's name and what happened and all that had been on social media. I said, look, I can't confirm that. I can't say that we had to go through the process. He he was very upset with me and his comment. He goes, you know, Scott, you used to be such a good guy. And now all of a sudden you're keeping all these secrets and you're hard to work with. And I said, I haven't changed. And, and the perceptions, and, and I really took that to heart. And it really upset me because it was one of those things. And I have to say, look, this poor gentleman who died in the rock fall, of course, it's been 
His name is out there, but he was with his wife on their honeymoon. He was from England. His his family didn't even know we had a lot of these things to go through. And so I think about, again, just like in the fire, I think about those things. Like you you want the family to hear from from us. You know, you, you want it to wait. And you've got all these things you have to do in the media is is wants it to do it and so getting back to this reporter he was so mad at me and said you're such a to be a good buy and i said to him i said look i've been working with you for years i haven't changed the media has changed and i says well well what why aren't you patient what's changed on your set and he said it's competition you know he said it's, it's a, yeah but but he said because the competition with facebook and the competition oh, yeah. and he says you know facebook and someone is saying this on facebook and, and and jamie and i get this literally every day someone reads something and they'll say it's on facebook can you verify it and 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 what the media they they can't understand um, and especially some, and, and I'll be, and I'll be very direct. Is sometimes we'll get like an assignment manager from a television station. Look, well, you can't you verify it? It's on Facebook. And I say no. Well, they go, well, why not? It's on Facebook. And and I'll say, but we don't know who put it on Facebook. We don't know if it's accurate. And so it's one of those things where where where, where we're not trying to frustrate the media, but they need to understand that there is a process. There's a legal, ethical, moral, professional process that we have to go through. Right. Right. You know, it's trying to balance. You want to provide good information, but we want to do it the right way. And uh, we do have ethical standards that we have to follow. Yosemite is open all year round. And as with any trip you're planning, you need to be prepared. Regardless of your favorite time of the year to visit Yosemite, remember, what's good for the goose is also good for the gander. You could walk out to our car right now. We've got sleeping bags in our car. We've got to change the clothes. And we know that, that, that we might not be going home tonight. Preparation and our reliance on technology during a trip to Yosemite or any backcountry excursion for that matter could mean trouble at best or your life at worst. Sounds like a silly thing, but this is becoming more of an issue I'll mention briefly. It has to do with a map. Scott and Jamie also talk about their favorite moments in the park. Now let's get back to Yosemite. Jamie and Scott, I think it now it's time for us to move on to uh, more positive messaging here uh, in this podcast. Um, the park is open almost, well, all year round. It is open year round. Open year round. 365 days. I remember my wife and I came here back in, before we were married in 93, and we went ice skating. Correct. Down here in wintertime. It was January. It was for my birthday. So the park stays open year round. When it's snowy, it's icy, uh, even during the rainy season, there could be localized flooding. For those folks who want to come out here all year round, what advice would you give them to have an enjoyable visit with the anticipation that there could be some hazards? The most important thing that we like to convey is to is to be prepared. You know, and Jamie and I, we do literally hundreds of interviews a year. And it's interesting is that someone will say, what's the best time of year to visit Yosemite? Now, of course, when we say, what's your favorite national park? You know, we both like to say, you know, we're biased. It, <laughs> I say Yosemite. And, 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 and of course, we all have our personal opinions. But the thing with Yosemite, I always say, you know, for example, I love the spring with the waterfalls and the green meadows. I love the summer. It's great hiking. You can swim in the 
river. Um, I love the fall, fall colors, beautiful weather. Winter's wonderful, less busy. As you mentioned, there's ice skating, cross-country skiing, downhill skiing. And so for us, it's one of those things that that Yosemite stays open year-round. And that's one of the things we we message we want to get out. But we also want to get out that, that each one of those seasons necessitates a little different preparation. So for example, for the winter, it's things like um, you have to have chains. You know, people think that, well, I have a four-wheel drive. Even if, if you, even if you have a four-wheel drive, there are times where chains are required. So it's bringing chains, bringing adequate clothing, um, being prepared that um, – roads could close. So like, for example, for Jamie and me as a ranger, we call it our go bag. Both of us, you could walk out to our car right now. We've got sleeping bags in our car. We've got a change of clothes. And we know that that, that we might not be going home tonight. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully oh, that's not the case. we are, but, but, yeah. but that's a prep. So, and so, so, so it's preparation. Or if you're coming here in the summer, for example, and you're hiking, you know, there was a, a there, there was kind of a funny thing years ago where there was a thing about people hiking up to Half Dome and flip-flops, you know, and there was stories about that and people just did that. And I I remember going up with a reporter and a visitor had seen a story that I had done and he walked up to me near the top of Half Dome and he pointed to his feet and he says, look, you know, Ranger, you know, you say you can't do it in flip-flops and I did. And I says, well, I'm not saying you can't, but you know, it's not something we re- recommend. And so the bottom line is is preparation. And that's the thing with, with Yosemite is that um, with uh, 30, gosh, I think it's close to 40 million people now in California. I mean, we're within a day's drive between Sacramento and San Francisco of the the major population centers and so it's just it's just being prepared and if people do that they can look at the park website um, we try to put stuff out on social media about roads and that's what we try to do as park rangers and public affairs is tell people look we want you to enjoy your visit but there is some responsibility on the part of a potential visitor to to, to plan accordingly and another thing uh, sounds like a silly thing but this is becoming more of a an issue I'll mention briefly has to do with a map. You know, we you know we've how many stories have we heard? People follow their GPS. They go down roads that are closed, or they'll go down places, and we'll tell people it's like, well, don't you have a map? And people, a map? I don't have a map. And so it's interesting because although I'm 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 54 and I'm fine with that, and I still like maps. I say the GPS is fine, but but a good example is coming up Highway 395, coming over 120 Tioga Road is closed in the wintertime. I can't tell you how many times I've had news crews or visitors drive up 395 and, and they'll be doing this in January and they'll say, oh, I'm almost to Bishop. I'm coming up. And I'm like, stop and turn around. <laughs> like, stop and turn around. I'm like, what? I go, you can't get in. And they're like, well, what do you mean? My GPS tells me to go up. And I says, yeah, but that road is closed in the wintertime. And so it's things like bringing a map that that's that nowadays people don't even think about it. Well, the, the signal here, if you're using your cell phone like google maps you're not going to get a signal in many of the places around here exactly i am looking at my phones right now and i've got two i've got one from verizon and i got one from at&t uh one's work one's personal but it's great to have both services but even now i'm looking and i've got uh three bars lte on one and i've got nothing no service on the other exactly and one important thing for everyone to remember different carriers will have different cell signals in the park. So if you have really strong signal here in the village, which is one of the most developed sections of Yosemite National Park, if you stop step 20 feet in any direction, <laughs> that signal dramatically changes. Yeah. And if you get on, on a trail and you start walking a mile from here, you're going to lose your signal. There is no cell signal. Uh, it is really important to carry a map 
And it's also really important to understand how to read that map. (laughs) And we have these challenges with visitors. Scott and I, as rangers, one of the things we do, we get out of the office, we go take a walk, we rove the park, we talk to visitors, and every single day I have a visitor stopping me. Where's my car? Where's the village? (sighs) Where are all these different features? Um, So trip planning and understanding your day and what you want to do is key to success in any season. Paying attention to your surroundings, having a good sense of where you are and marking that somehow on a map is critical. Yosemite is a big place. Yosemite Valley alone is a big place. And a lot of times people don't mark down where they parked their car. And when a visitor stops me and says, Ranger, I'm trying to find my car. Can you help me? My first question, absolutely. Where did you park? Do you remember what you were near? Well, there was a big tree. Oh, really? (laughs) You know, Mm. we do have challenges that Yosemite is a big place and it looks very similar. So, you know, pay attention to what parking lot you drive into. Look for the road sign that's close to you. Look for the shuttle stop that's close to you. You know what Circle I Circle that. I do this at the at the uh, when I go to the airport. I'll take my phone and I get on a shuttle bus. I'll take my phone, I'll grab a quick picture before I get on that bus of the bus stop. That way I remember in case I forget. I come off a long trip, I'm tired. I, my brain isn't functioning the way it should be. Where did I park? Oh yeah, I took a picture of the stop. Okay, I get a, I got to get off on stop number 19. You could do the same here. Take a picture of where you parked. Trip preparation, thinking your trip through, thinking your ability levels through, and remember, we want you to come to Yosemite, have an experience with the great outdoors, whatever that experience is for you, but we want you to have a safe and enjoyable time. We want you to go home in the same condition that you came here in, and that means taking a few minutes, get on the National Parks Yosemite webpage. Take a look at a planning book. Call us. We actually have a public information office. You can call and talk to a ranger. You can come and visit us in a visitor center. Um, As park rangers, public education is our first job, and we want to help you have an enjoyable time. But if you don't take the time to do any planning on your own, it's really hard for us to answer your questions and to help you figure out what you really want to do today. Take some personal responsibility in your own enjoyment. Exactly, exactly. Scott, is there anything else you want to say before we wrap this up? Yeah, I, I think I think it's it's really important. It's interesting. We have a um, a class that I took a few years ago that is really good. And Jamie just mentioned it. it's called operational leadership, and it's all about these different things. And there's a part of it called situational awareness and being aware of of what's around you. And as Jamie mentioned, it's interesting because every year in all of our years is that. You know, we've had the fire this year, we've had the flooding, we've had the rock fall. And for us, both as visitors and rangers, it's just being aware of your surroundings. And that's something that we're going to look at this winter, too, with with roads and with mudslides and and paying attention. And as Jamie mentioned, um, you know, we both, uh, speaking for both of us, we we both feel very honored and privileged to work for the National Park Service here in Yosemite National Park for for me to be able to get up in the morning and put this uniform on and know that that that, that that we're representatives of our national park. It's it's a great honor and it's a great privilege. And it's something that that Jamie and I love to do. And that's something um, 
as Jamie mentioned, and as I'll, I'll say a lot with the visitors, is that the trip the trip planning is really important because if you're coming here to Yosemite, sometimes if you're just here for the day, or no matter how much time you're here, that 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 this is a wild place and. As we've seen, conditions change, things change, you're in an unfamiliar area, so a little preparation is important. But at the same time, um, we just want people to know that that Yosemite National Park is open. Everything is open after the fire. Um, as we're looking into the fall, the fall is a beautiful time. It's great hiking weather. Um, things will remain open, and um, it's all about preserving the park. But for us, it's it's for providing for the enjoyment of the visitor, and we love to see the visitors. And for me, after all these years, you know, some of the best compliments I get, people say, "Gosh, you know, you you know, you you, you love your job and you love being here." And I like to say. Um, um, you know, that's something that, that you know, you, you just can't, you can't fake. And Yosemite National Park belongs to the American people and the people of the world come and enjoy it. And we just want people to know that the fire is done um, and uh, we're, we're fully open and we invite everybody to come visit their national park. One last question for each of you. Jamie, one of your favorite memorable moments here in the park? I think of Yosemite as layers of adventure. The layer of the valley floor, we sit at 3,000 feet, you have the, or 4,000 feet, you have these beautiful granite cliffs towering 3,000 feet over your head. It is a spectacular place, but when you climb out of the valley into a new layer of adventure, whether it be hiking to Glacier Point, or maybe Taft Point, or going up in the high country to the High Sierra, hiking around the Tuolumne Meadows area is my absolute favorite place in the world. Scott? I have a lot of great memories, but one of mine, just a couple of years ago, we get a lot of celebrities and politicians, a lot of people come here. I was privileged to uh, be part of the team that planned for the visit of President Obama and the First Lady and the First Family. And for me, it was a a lot of work, but I remember um, the day when the helicopters landed and the first family got out and they walked over and and they and they and the president shook my hand and and he knew I had a, a lot of work done and 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 it was just just a huge moment for me to be able to stand there with my colleagues and welcome the president of the United States to Yosemite National Park and have them here for the whole weekend it, I just thought to myself this is this is just the ultimate and uh, it's a moments like that that uh, that I'll never forget big smile on your face too huh yeah oh yeah all right again we've been sitting down talking with uh, scott getteman who is the chief public affairs officer and ranger here at yosemite national park as well as his colleague jamie richards public affairs officer here at yosemite national park thanks very much for taking the time to sit down and talk with me i appreciate it and uh enjoy your day at the office Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. This is a great pleasure. I appreciate it. Thanks. Well, I hope you made it through to the end of this one. It's our longest podcast to date. Not that that's what we're trying to do, but that's sort of just how it ended up. There's so much good information and insight in this one that you can take away from it, whether you're a PIO, a first responder, emergency manager, or even a tourist. We have some photos and video and examples of those carefully scripted press releases Scott talked about right there on our website oesnews.com one more time oesnews.com all you have to do is click on podcasts once you're there and then click on this episode we have a map of the fire and some pretty handy links as well 
thanks once again to Scott Gediman and Jamie Richards, park rangers at Yosemite National Park. And thanks to you for taking your valuable time to listen. We appreciate it. We know it's valuable. And be sure to subscribe to All Hazards if you would. We'd appreciate it. It's at the iTunes Store and Google Play as well. If you have any questions or comments, shoot me an email, would you? Questions at caloes.ca.gov. One more time, that email address is questions at caloes.ca.gov. For everyone here at Cal OES, I'm Sean Boyd. Take care and be safe. You've been listening to the Cal OES All Hazards Podcast. Don't forget to check out our podcast page where you can find past episodes along with show notes and links. And give us a social shout out. Tell others about us on Twitter and Facebook. And let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you.